As I mentioned a moment ago, our passage this morning is Romans 12, 1 and 2. And please turn there with me, or you can look on the words behind me. The Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he says this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. If you are a Christian, your entire duty, your entire life is summed up in those words. Everything you need to know is right there. This is one of those big picture summaries of everything that is important for you as a Christian. And it is vital for us. It's vital to your godliness. It's vital to our obedience to God. That we always keep the big picture in view. Many of us are constantly getting bogged down in the minutia of life or the minutia of the Bible. And we... We are always tempted to miss the forest for the trees. And we see little things. And the little things begin to not make sense because we've missed the big picture. We need to often stand back and, and see the big picture. What is this all about? What is your life as a Christian all about? We need to back up and see the lay of the land and see how it all fits together. We need to see what Life is all about and where we, where we are, where we stand, where our lives are in relation to the things that are really important. And this is one of those places where God sums it all up for us. He summarizes the whole Christian life for us. And he says that what lies at the heart of the Christian life is obedience. What lies at the very heart of the Christian life is obedience. Some of you might think that, no, what really lies at the heart of the Christian life is faith. But faith is given to us so that we will obey. It's given to us for the sake of our obedience. Life as a Christian is about obedience that flows from transformation, that flows from the mercies and the grace of God. That's what this text tells us. Life as a Christian is about obedience that flows from transformation, that flows from the mercies and the grace of God. That is the big picture. You must organize your life as as a Christian around that one thing. Obedience. That is absolutely the clear and constant teaching of God's Word. Jesus says, In John 3, verse 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Obedience to Jesus Christ is a matter of life and death. Obedience that flows from faith. Paul said at the end of his letter to, to the Romans, in chapter 16, right at the end, where he, his last words, his last doxology is what it is. He's talking to God, words of glory. 
at the end of his letter to the Romans, he sums up the whole thing. He says that the whole point of the coming of Jesus Christ, the whole point of everything that led up to that one event, Jesus Christ coming, the whole point, he says that God did all of it so that men would obey God. Here's what he says, Romans 16, 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, here it is, leading to obedience of faith. All of that leading to obedience. Glory to God for this. To the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. It all leads to obedience. When the Apostle Peter begins his first letter to Christians who are scattered around the Roman Empire, persecuted and suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ, he gives them another big picture summary and reminds them that ultimately, the goal of their lives, the goal of being a Christian, God's purpose in choosing them is to change them into people who will obey Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. The reason that God chose you is so that you would obey Jesus Christ. How far we have fallen from that basic truth. We have warped and twisted and perverted the very heart of God's purposes. We have stripped the gospel of Jesus Christ of the main thing. We have reduced it down to a little transaction that takes place between me and God where I jump through His hoops, the hoops of saying certain words and assenting to certain facts, and then by jumping through those hoops, I... Put him in my debt. And he has to respond by giving me eternal life. He has to. And if you're an American, then he has to give you a nice car and a stable job and a pretty wife and straight teeth and perfect kids too. And that's the gospel. We have taken the gospel of Jesus Christ and we've cut the heart out of it. And we've reduced it down to good news. Not good news about the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Not good news about the power of a God who is terrible in wrath and perfect in judgment. Not good news about a Savior whose only means of dealing with the blackness and the depth and the twistedness and the depravity of our hearts is to kill His own Son. And crush Him mercilessly in our place so that we could live. Certainly not, not good news about how we can do and be 
what we were made for. Humble servants of God. Who live every detail of our lives under the hand of God with a desire to please Him and honor Him and worship Him with glad-hearted obedience. No, 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 no. That's not the gospel anymore. Because that would be legalism. To make obedience the goal of our salvation, the goal of the gospel, that can't be right. I mean, if obedience has anything to do with the gospel, then you ruin the gospel, right? Isn't that what we're taught? I thought God sent His Son to die in our place so that we wouldn't have to obey anymore. Isn't that it? Isn't, isn't that what Paul meant when he said, you're not under law, but under grace? Doesn't that mean that he takes away God's law? That grace takes away God's law? Doesn't it mean that grace makes obedience unnecessary and optional at best? Brothers and sisters, how far have we fallen? We've stood by and we've watched. Maybe even we've helped. As godless men have stripped the gospel bare of all of its power. Where is the power of the gospel anymore? Where is the power of the gospel to change us? The only power that the so-called gospel has anymore is to get you nice things here on this earth and then take you to heaven when you die, which of course is a nice, misty shopping mall in the sky where you actually end up getting everything you ever wanted but never got here. What power? To kill our lusts. It's gone. How far we have fallen. But God won't let us do that for long because He puts these words in our faces. Words that never change. Words that are hard. Words that are objective. Words that are definite. Words that say the same thing every time we read them. And here's what these words say. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is the, your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. If, if that has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you think that those words have nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ and it has nothing to do with the book of Romans, it has nothing to do with the, uh, if it has nothing to do with the book of Romans and it has nothing to do with the Bible, and we might as well throw all of it out as worthless, sentimental, outdated relic. This is at the heart of Paul's presentation to us of what the gospel is for. So what exactly does God say here? Verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That little word, therefore, is very important. Some of the most important words in Scripture are the little ones that we tend to skip over. Therefore is, is hugely important because it looks backwards. 
he's turning a corner. He's he's turning a corner in the whole book, in the whole argument. He says, now take everything that I just wrote. Take all of it. Take 11 chapters of teaching. 11 chapters of argument and reasoning and proof from the Old Testament scriptures about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Take all of that and with all of that in mind, all of the weight of that, all of the glory of that, take all of that and with all of that in mind, here is the point. The point of all of that teaching comes down to this. I urge you. I exhort you. He urges us to do what? I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. I urge you, in light of everything that I've already said, I urge you, I exhort you not to abandon obedience to God in the name of grace, but to pursue obedience to God in the name of grace. I urge you because of all of the mercies and all of the kindnesses of God that he has showered on you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I urge you to use all of that to motivate yourself and 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 empower yourself to kill yourself. It's exactly what he says, isn't it? I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your body as a living and holy sacrifice. He doesn't actually mean that we should literally kill ourselves, but he does mean that we must give ourselves completely to God. When you put a sacrifice on the altar in the Old Testament, you you don't have any hopes of getting any of it back. It's gone. We must give our lives completely to God. That is the only reasonable thing to do in light of the mercies of God. He says the same kind of thing earlier in Romans, in Romans 6, 12, and 13. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Take your whole life, your body, your mind, every part of you and give it to God as a tool in his hand for righteousness. And he says the same kind of thing in 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You're not your own. You have been bought. Give your life to God. It's not yours anyway. Give your whole existence to Him. Now, is that how you respond to knowing the mercies of God? Do you respond to the mercies of God with that full, radical, absolute abandon? Oh, Lord, I'm not my own. You have bought me with a price. You have rescued, you, rescued me. Take me. Is that your response to the mercies of God? Or do you use the mercies of God as a reason for why you don't need to obey God? That's a very common thing, isn't it? You've done it. I've done it. There is a sin that is precious to you. And you calculate how you are going to do it when you're going to do it, how you're going to do it. 
And yes, there's 1 John 1, 9, which says, If you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I know that after I sin, it doesn't matter really because I'll be okay because all I have to do is confess it and it's okay. It's fine. I've told you before that I knew a man whose father molested his granddaughter for years under the 1 John 1, 9 clause. And it's, it's so wicked. It's nothing new, though. Look at, uh, listen to these words. Jude, in his little letter, Jude um, says in verse 4 of his letter, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. You know what licentiousness is, right? Licentiousness is do whatever you want to do. If it feels good, do it. There are no rules. There are no do's and don'ts. Whatever you want to do, do it. These men turn the grace of God. They twist the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. For those of you who who have tracked several years ago, there was something about in the 80s, 1980s and early 90s, there was something going on called the Lordship Controversy. Some of you would remember this. On one side, you had people like John MacArthur, a pastor out in California. He was on the Lordship side, which of course is biblical. And then on the other side, you had uh, guys like Zane Hodges and others from Dallas uh, Seminary who were on the non-Lordship side, which, as David Canfield would say, uh, is is uh, heterodox at best, if not heresy. It's exactly what it is. And people on this non-Lordship side would teach that the way to honor Now get this, the way to honor and magnify the grace of God is to to deny that Christians need to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. They would say that the richness of the grace of God means that obedience to Christ and submission to His authority is an optional step in the Christian life. They would say things like this, you must have Jesus as your Savior but not necessarily as your Lord. He can be your Savior, but not be on the throne of your life. He can be your Savior, and maybe somewhere down the road you might possibly choose to make Him your Lord. You can know Jesus Christ and have the Holy Spirit in you and be reconciled to God the Father and have all the benefits of the Gospel and at the same time make a self-conscious decision to blow off the commands of Jesus. And you can do it all under the name, all under the guise of honoring the grace of God. There's a whole society called um, the Grace Evangelical Society, something like that. A society of pastors and theologians that exists to blow off the commands of Jesus in the name of honoring the grace of God. Nothing could be further from the truth. The only reasonable response to the greatness of the grace 
And the mercies of God is to do what He commands us to do. God, Jesus Christ is not separate. He's not divided. He is both Lord and Master and Savior. And God commands us to do this, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And that is why God says again to the Apostle Paul in Titus chapter 2, he says this, listen to these words. He says, the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. This is Titus chapter 2. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. When the grace of God comes, when the grace of God bursts into your life, it does not teach you to embrace ungodliness and worldly desires. The grace of God comes bursting into your life, and the grace of God teaches you to say no to ungodliness and worldly desires. And if you have made a truce with your sin, if you have made a truce with your sin, and all the while told yourself that you were somehow magnifying the free grace of God, then you have never known the grace of God. Because the grace of God comes teaching us to say no to ungodliness. It does not come teaching us to say yes to ungodliness. Now that is the goal. Offer yourself a sacrifice, holy, living, holy sacrifice to God. That's the goal. But how do we do it? His answer is in verse 2. He says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, think, think like Paul is thinking. Think about his reasoning. Think about what he's saying. He says you must present your body as a living sacrifice to God, as a holy sacrifice to God. And the way to do that is to not be conformed to this world, but instead to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And as you pursue that nonconformity to the world, as you pursue that transformation of your mind, you will then know and understand the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And it all starts with being a nonconformist. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not... Be squeezed into the mold of this world, is what he's saying. Why does he say that to us? He says it because you and I are constantly under this constant pressure to be squeezed into the mold of this world. The godlessness of this age is an active force. It is an active force pressing down on us constantly, relentlessly, bearing down on us from every angle at every moment, no matter where we go. There is never a break from it. There's never relief from the pressure of being conformed to this age, the wickedness of this age. There's nowhere you can go to get away from it. It's no longer the case that we can come even into the, the walls 
of the church and expect to find the one place where we can be free from this evil pressure of the world beating down on us. I don't know if the church was ever a place where we could be free from it. You read the New Testament and you see that Paul is always warning, always warning the church to be on guard against the pressures of the world in the church. In fact, the church in America has taken conformity to the pattern of this world and turned it into a principle. They've turned it into a virtue. The church in America, the evangelical church in America, has thrown itself into the mold of this age and called it relevance or sensitivity or contextualization. And the gospel is being lost in the process. But how do we keep ourselves from being conformed to this world? He says in verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is the only way we can ever hope to obey God. There is a negative fight and there's a positive fight. We are to present our bodies as a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice to God. We are to obey Him only as we fight against being conformed to this world and fight for the transformation of our minds. But we've given up both of those fights. We've given up the fight against conformity to this world. We've run with it. We've embraced conformity and called it a virtue. And we've given up on being transformed in our minds. We've done this a hundred different ways. For example, many of us have assumed that the life of the mind has nothing to do with our lives as Christians. We've built a firewall between our thinking and our faith. Some of us have checked our minds at the door when we come into the church or more likely when we go into the Christian bookstore. Check your mind at the door. If people say good things about it, it must be good. Someone came up to me after the first service and and mentioned this book called The Shack. Have any of you seen that book? sweeping the evangelical church and it's it's abhorrent but it's popular so it must be good right it must be true people are saying good things about it eugene peterson says it's the best thing since pilgrim's progress it must be good it doesn't occur to us to actually think about what it says or we've built a one-way firewall, we, a firewall like this, where we apply our, our, our autonomous, independent rationalism to Scripture. We take our minds and we judge Scripture with our autonomous, independent rationalism, but we never let Scripture shape and discipline our thinking. We take our thinking and apply it to Scripture, judge it. We never let Scripture judge us and change our mind. But the way we think is very important. Paul, God tells us to think and what to think about all through Scripture. God commands us to think and He commands us to love Him with our minds. But we've divorced our minds from our lives as Christians as if our minds were some neutral territory, some separate part of us, some part of us that was never affected by the fall, as if we could 
think rightly about anything apart from Scripture. And more than that, we've given up the fight altogether. And we've, we've actually embraced basic assumptions about life and about the meaning of life and about what is ultimately important that have nothing to do with, with God and His authoritative Word. We have embraced ideas and definitions and assumptions that have no resemblance whatsoever to the ideas and definitions and assumptions of Scripture. If we were to take not the things that we say are true, but the, the, but the things that we actually act out of, the basic assumptions of life, if we were honest enough to actually identify them and then compare them with Scripture, most of us would be shocked. The things that actually make you do what you do on Monday are completely separate from, from Scripture. We've become passive. We have been conformed instead of actively seeking to be transformed. We've taken the coins of value of our culture for granted. We've, we've taken the definitions of our culture for granted. We've let this evil age set the agenda and define the terms and lay down the ground rules and interpret reality for us. And we've done it completely passively. We rolled over on our back and just said, you tell me. You tell me what's important. We've allowed the world to tell us that our main problem is that we don't love ourselves enough. And there are people in this room who are absolutely committed to that as the ex explanation for their lives and the lives of their loved ones. I know what it is. I don't love myself enough. He has low self-esteem. That explains everything. As if that had anything to do with anything in Scripture. Anything at all. We've allowed the world to tell us that the most loving thing that a God or a husband or a mother could, could do is to never say no. We've taken Dr. Spock and made him our God. I don't mean the guy with the pointy ears. Some of you know who I'm talking about. We've allowed the world to tell us that the greatest virtue is tolerance. And that's why when we read Joshua chapter 8, we're scandalized. Because that wasn't very tolerant. And we know what's right. Now, there's actually a perfect example of how we have done this right here in Romans 12, 1 and 2. A perfect example of how we have let our thinking be shaped by the world instead of by Scripture. We hear all the time. Pastor Bailey, Pastor Carell and I hear this all the time. We hear all the time that people want to be encouraged more. Now, let me ask you a question. What do people mean when they say, I need to be encouraged more? Whose definition of encouragement are they using? What do you mean by it? Well, I think people often mean something like this. Tell me the good stuff. Tell me the stuff I like to hear. Skip ahead to the good parts. Tell me what I, tell me what I do not have to do. Stop telling me what I need to do. Comfort me. Soothe me. Peace, peace. Say peace, peace to me. That's what I want to hear. Encourage me. Or maybe it's something like this. Don't tell me what I must do. Because if you tell me what I must do, that's legalism. Don't tell me what I must do. Tell me what Jesus has done. And that's all I want to hear. After all, we know 
that as a self-evident truth that the Bible is not a list of do's and don'ts, right? This is self-evident. We know as, as Christians in America that the Bible is not a list of do's and don'ts. Christianity is not a religion. It's not a religion, nasty word, religion. Christianity is not a religion that insists that we do things like visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep ourselves unstained by the world. Now, of course, that's exactly what Scripture says, isn't it? True what? Religion is this. To visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep ourselves unstained for the world. No, no, no. Christianity isn't a religion. I learned that somewhere. It says it in the Bible, right? Doesn't it say that Christianity isn't a religion? It's a relationship. And it's a relationship mainly where Jesus tells me how nice I am and gives me nice stuff. So encourage me. Now I know that none of you would say that, right? Well, what do you mean when you say you want more encouragement? I suspect that some of you, when you say you want encouragement, want more of the good news. You want to hear more about forgiveness and mercy and grace. But why? Why? I want you to be very careful and very self-aware right now as you think about yourself. Why? This is a place where it would be very easy for you to be conformed to this age, but you need to be transformed in your mind. What does the word encourage actually mean? Well, here's, uh, here's, the, here's the Oxford American Dictionary entry for the word encourage. You can look this up. Encourage. Give support, confidence, or hope to someone. Give support and advice to someone so that they will do or continue to do something. And it goes on to say this, to encourage is to give active help or to raise confidence to the point where one dares to do what is difficult. Now, do you see what that means? For me to encourage you is for me to strengthen you, not so that you won't have to do what is difficult, but so that you'll be able to do what is difficult. And the difficult thing is to obey. The difficult thing in Romans 12, 1 and 2 is to give yourself as a living and holy sacrifice to God. Do you need encouragement for that? Absolutely you do. And that is absolutely the kind of encouragement we want to give you. But I'm afraid that a lot of people who say they want encouragement can't hear the kind of encouragement that Scripture actually gives. When they hear the actual encouragement of the Scripture, they don't even hear it as encouragement because the Bible gives us the call to obey and the promise of power to obey, but we have learned to filter out anything that has to do with obedience. We've redefined encouragement to mean this. Tell me I don't have to obey. Encourage me. Tell me I don't have to obey. Tell me that Jesus has done it for me and that I don't have to do anything. 
That's encouragement. That would be encouraging to me. I've actually heard people say, here are all the things that God commands you, and they're actually pretty good at pointing out some of that, but then they say this, here are all the things that God commands you, but, but don't worry about it. Jesus has done it for you. And they take away with one hand what they give with the other. But that is not the encouragement of the Gospel. That's not encouraging. Because you know in your conscience that God does command you to obey. The encouragement of the Gospel is, yes, Jesus Christ has obeyed God's law perfectly and He has done it in the place of everyone who will see their wickedness and who will turn to Him for mercy and forgiveness. He has, he has, he has kept the law perfectly for you. God does look at the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. He does cover you with that righteousness and look at you and treat you as if you are righteous if you fear God and put your faith in Christ. But He does not do all of that so that you will not have to obey anymore. He does not save you from the penalty of your sins just to leave you in slavery to your sins. The grace of God is not just this kind disposition in the heart of God that causes Him to feel warm thoughts and be nice to you. That is not the grace of God. The grace of God is the power of God that He gives to everyone who comes to Him by faith. The grace of God is power. And He gives that power so that we will be able to obey Him. Yes, He forgives our sin. But He doesn't forgive our sin in order to keep us in the power of sin. The grace of God does not cancel out the character of God or the law of God as a standard of obedience. The grace of God does remove the law of God as a covenant of works for us. Thank God for that. We are not right with God from our obedience, but that doesn't change the need for our obedience. It is no longer do these things and then live. It is now live and then go and do these things. Most of you know who John Bunyan was. He was the, uh, the Baptist guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, 1600s. And he, he expressed that in this little rhyme about the gospel and, and the law and obedience. And it goes like this. Run, John, run. The law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far greater news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. It gives you the power to obey. That is the point. The life that comes to those of us who believe the gospel is not instead of our obedience, it's for our obedience. That is why God says here through the Apostle Paul, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. The mercies of God are brought to bear. The mercies of God are always brought to bear in Scripture. Always. The mercies of God are brought to bear, not to remove the need for obedience, but to fill us with hope and power for obedience. As a matter of fact, the word that Paul uses here, the word urge, when he says, I urge you, is the word that is often translated as encourage. 
It's the same word that's used for the Holy Spirit. When Jesus says, I'm going to send you another comforter or helper. How often do you think of the Holy Spirit as your urger, exhorter, the one who, the one who pushes you, the one who fills you with power and strength and hope to obey? So yes, Paul encourages us. I encourage you. We encourage you. But, but not to be passive and lazy and not to ignore God's commands and not to turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and to deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. But we encourage you, by the mercies of God, to obey Him. We encourage you, as the Oxford Dictionary says, to dare to do what is difficult. If the encouragement you want is the kind of encouragement that says, there, 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 don't worry, you don't really have to do anything difficult, then you do not, you do not want biblical encouragement and you would not know it if you saw it. You've been pressed into the mold of this age and you desperately need to be transformed in your mind because true biblical encouragement comes to you all over the place in God's Word. And it says, yes, it is difficult. Yes, God does require you to obey. Yes, the Gospel is given to you not just to save you from the penalty of your sins, but also to save you from the power of your sins. So be strong. True biblical encouragement comes to you sounding like this. Let me close with, these, with this passage from 1 Peter 1. This is what true Gospel biblical encouragement comes to you sounding like. Listen to these words, 1 Peter 1, 13-23. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in... Does anyone know the next word? Anyone? Does anyone know the next word? Fear. Wait a minute. If you know God is your Father, conduct yourselves with fear? I thought we didn't have to worry about that anymore. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him in, from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. That is encouragement. 
There is work to be done. There is holiness to be pursued. There is obedience to be performed. There are lusts to fight. There, there is fervent love to be cultivated. But be strong. Be of good cheer. There is grace to be had. There is power for you. You have a Father in heaven who loves you and a Savior who bought you with His precious blood. There is a victor who was raised from the dead for you and you can put all of your hope in Him. So fight. Obey. Be holy. That is the kind of encouragement we need. Not encouragement to be passive, but encouragement to be strong. Let your mind be transformed so that you think rightly about encouragement. Now, some of you here have no ability to have your minds transformed and renewed because your mind is essentially hostile towards God and it is impossible for you to know God or to understand His ways at all. God says that the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. Some of you sitting in here right now are described by that. It's the condition of everyone in this room has never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and been reconciled to God through Him. And some of you are even trying to understand God. I mean, you're here. You're trying to understand Scripture. But you're trying to understand it as if you could understand it with your natural reason. With a mind that is actually hateful towards God. And you'll never understand any of it. Because you need something to happen to you before you can even understand it. Your, your mind is blind and dark and ignorant and you hate God and you think you can live without Him. You think those who are genuinely humble before God are ignorant and you claim to be wise. In reality, you're a fool. Your only hope is to have your heart changed, to have your taste changed, to have your, your, your inclinations changed away from being hostile to God to being a lover of God. And the only way for you to do that is to bow your knee under the hand of God and ask Him to save you from the death and the destruction and the emptiness and the futility and the hopelessness that your sin deserves and that you've heaped up for yourself. The sin that you cherish. Some of you will refuse to do that because your sin is more precious to you than God could ever be. How in the world do you think you'll understand Him? I urge you, I encourage you, come to Jesus Christ and live. Let me pray with you.